I'll tell you where this lesson came from. Um, Carrie and I were watching a movie, and one of the main characters um, basically was saying that, um, you know, of course, all Christians want, you know, people like me to go to hell. And um, anyway, um, it made me think about, you know, basically this verse, right? Um, for folks uh, that don't want to be Christians, and they, if you were going to say what verse would they know out of the Bible, right? It's this one, right? That's the one. Um, and I've kind of wanted to study this passage that goes with this verse, um, basically to help us understand, um, our role to some degree, but, you know, I also kind of want to just talk about the problem in general. Uh, Gary and I didn't really talk about what the follow-up class would be about or like, but, um, you know, in the way of thoughts around this, um, you know, really want us to have a good understanding of what our spot is in this and why it's important for us to understand what our spot is uh, and why it is maybe that, um, you know, so many folks would know this verse, right, that aren't interested in anything else the Bible's got to say. Um, so when I think about Stephen, all right, Stephen being stoned, um, and I'll a I ask questions a lot. If you hadn't been in my class as much, I'm asking questions, but I'm not expecting you to answer me back. Uh, but <sighs> Stephen's being stoned. Uh, do you think um, that Stephen needed the approval of the people around him to feel loved or right, correct? Um, I would say no. And, and think about what processes in his mind uh, let him confidently proceed with what he was doing, understand the understanding the consequences. Think about the characters in Hebrew 11, Hebrews 11, uh, that suffered terrible things, but didn't deny God, didn't deny their Savior. Um, and, you know, at, at no point did they seem to cry out for approval for their choices from those around them, right? They, they were appealing to those, hoping that those would be saved, that they would want to be saved. But, you know, it's easy, I guess, you know, you think about Peter on... Uh, you know, here, here it is, uh, he's, he's preaching the first gospel sermon and thousands of people are being baptized. Was that great? That a great feeling? Uh, people are plugging in, they're approving of what he's saying, they're agreeing with him. Um, does that build confidence uh, with Peter in knowing that he's right? Or did he have confidence that he was right based on some other things? Okay, so you're thinking about those people and those kinds of decisions. They're right. Have you ever uh, thought about I'm going to do something wrong or 
I really like doing this. I know it's wrong. Uh, does it help to have approval of other folks in those things? And do those things, does that approval help you in that decision to alleviate a certain amount of guilt? Bad. Does that help you dispel some of those bad feelings about or guilty feelings about the choice that you made there? And so what, what I want to think about is, you know, I want to do something bad, I'm going to know this verse. You know, you shouldn't not approve of me, right? And think about when you do something good, do you need that approval externally? I see those, I'm hoping those wheels are turning, right? So, here's uh, a couple of thoughts. Um, you've got no right or business with regard to this judgment. And so what does that appeal to? This idea of authority. You have no authority to do this. You have no authority to judge me. And I want us to think about this idea of law. And where, and where do you fit into it? Think about it in the secular sense. Um, I've been called for jury duty. I know there's other folks in here who've been called for jury duty. That's you participating in our legal process, right? If we had somebody in here who was a policeman, does he participate in our legal process in a different way than I do on a daily basis? Does he have a different level of authority than I do in our day in the 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 daily uh, work of the law as it works in our society every day. Yeah. All right. So you've got no right or business that has to do with authority. And where would you get your authority if you were called to be on the jury? You'd get it from somewhere else. It wouldn't come from you. Is that right? What if you were elected as a judge? or appointed as a judge, do you then have a different spot of authority in this system that we live in? You would, right? But the law, say you're a judge here, does the law itself come from you? No, right? And so if you're participating as a judge or a juror, are you participating in the sentence or the punishment the determination of the sentence guilty not guilty are you are you asked to discern those things guilty or not guilty isn't that isn't that what you're asked to do when you participate in that way you've been given authority to do that that's what they're going to tell you that you're there to do but when you do that job are you done do you have authority to do the next job you don't Somebody else takes over. It's not on you, right? You've got no right or business. You hate me. Now, this is a pretty dishonest thought because if anybody knows that verse, do they also know that what we would claim is that Jesus died for you and then I'm a follower of Jesus. He died for your salvation. He loved you so much that they probably also know Jesus so loved the world. Gave, you know, probably, yeah, right? And if you're a Christian, what are you supposed to be? A follower of Christ? 
So is is this a pretty disingenuous statement? Might be how I feel because I'm feeling this accountability. I've made my decision. I'm feeling this accountability. Maybe I feel that way, but is that a legitimate thought? So remember, you've got no business. You've got no right. You hate me. You're no Christian, or you wouldn't do that. Uh, if you love me, you'd accept me as I am, right? And as some of these attitudes come your way, is it helpful for you to understand what the Bible definition of love is? Because does that fit what you would say is the Bible definition of love? Nope. You want me to go to hell. That was true. Uh, Of you, if somebody was feeling that from you, uh, wow, we're not doing something right. Is that right? Because is that what Jesus wants? Is that what Jesus came here to do? No. Was that part of God's plan for you? Was that His purpose when He created you? And as a Christian, if I follow His plan and His purpose for my life, is that who I'm supposed to be? And we see a lot of these different attitudes, don't we? So here's that passage. And we're going to read the whole, you know, the whole contiguous thought there. It's Matthew 7, uh, 1 through 6. Do not judge so that you will not be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So, it might be helpful for you to be looking at that passage as as we go through those questions, because we're going to ask them, and I'm and, and I'm asking them of this group of passages. So, as you're looking at that group, is a rebuke assumed? Basically, is there the expectation of a rebuke? Is it assumed as a part of that passage? Or is attitude all that's under consideration? So, what I think, is that all that's under consideration here? My attitude, the underlying thought of... And I maybe should have put attitude and thought or thought. Uh, but basically, is this an action that's being assumed or an attitude or a thought that's being assumed? And we, and we can see this is an action, right? And this rebuke is assumed. It's, it's a given that this is a part of what's going to go on here. Are Gentiles, strangers, and foreigners the ones in the crosshairs for this rebuke in this passage? 
Think about that. Look at it. Think about it. What do you think? Doesn't seem like it. Is this passage about someone's ability to discern whether or not a sin is a sin or if a sin has been committed? So, we talked about this idea of authority. What about ability? You know, is this passage about somebody's ability to discern whether or not there's been a sin committed? It's really not about the ability, is it? It's more about discerning whether or not a sin's been committed, right? Could it be that this is about humility, grace, forgiveness, and love versus hypocrisy, pride, and hate in our approach? So, you know, going back to this idea, you know, is is attitude a part of what's going on? I think the answer is very much yes. Is it the sum? No. But is it a part? Is it an important part? And when we look at uh, what's being said there, we can see that the hypocrisy thing is the problem, right? The hypocrisy, pride, and hate in our approach is the problem. It's not that there's a rebuke going to take place or whether or not there is going to be one to take place because we, what we see is, oh, you fix this and then you go do that, right? The rebuke is assumed. What the problem is in this passage is the attitude that goes with it. Y'all see that? Okay. So does Jesus or God provide instruction in righteousness, judgment, and rebuke with a heart full of grace, mercy, forgiveness, and, and love? Is that how we get instruction in righteousness, judgment, and rebuke from God is God is is the foundation of his attitude as he provides us with instruction and righteousness judgment and rebuke is it from a foundation of grace mercy forgiveness and love obviously the answer is yes the answer is yes right and so how if we're going to provide instruction and righteousness judgment and rebuke how should we do it there's only one way. We should do it like he does it. Great, with a heart full of grace, mercy, forgiveness, and love. Right? Isn't that what this passage is telling us? And I guess then we've got to figure out, is that something that, that you or I can do? Is that something you can do? Can you do that? And should you? I mean, can, are you able to give instruction and in righteousness, judgment, and rebuke with a heart full of grace, mercy, forgiveness, and love. Are you able to do that? So I've got some verses for consideration. We're just going to kind of go back and look through the book. So this is Leviticus, starting in verse 19. You shall do, do no injustice in judgment. Does it say you shall do no judgment? says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, no, no, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. 
You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. Interesting. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So, is this like a New Testament thing that we're talking about? Or is this a new thing? Or is the attitude that we're supposed to have and the way we're supposed to carry these things out, has that been true the whole time? Right? Is this, are these things always been true? Here's some more in Numbers. All right? And, and if, when you get over here, you'll see, like, if I just plucked this one out, right? But the last group of passages had to do with you and me individually. I'm just going to point that out. If he pushed him of hatred or threw something at him lying in wait, and as a result he died, or if he struck him down with his hand in enmity, and as a result he died... The one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer. The blood avenger shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or threw something at him without lying in wait or if any deadly object of stone and without seeing it dropped on him so that he died while, while he was not his enemy nor seeking his injury, an accident, then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the blood avenger according to these ordinances. So, is this a group deciding what kind of sin's been committed here and what, the, what needs to happen? So we've seen individuals in the Old Testament. We've seen the group in the Old Testament. And we see some given authority. I'm going to give an example of all these things. So Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem and went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. He appointed judges in the land and all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. He said to the judges, Consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for, for man, but the, for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Y'all see this? See this verse? So, do you have the right? Do you have the authority? If you do, where does it come from? Does it come from somewhere else? All right? Do you take it on yourself? And how does that work? Does that work the same way out here? Like in Lowndes County? It works the same way. Right? When you make a judgment... Are you making a judgment based on the laws of Lowndes County or the state of Mississippi or the United States of America? Or are you making them based on, I mean, that's how I feel about it. It's right. And you've been given that position to do that, and you have an expectation of doing it a certain way, but you do not judge for man but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. You you. Uh, be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the t taking of a bride. So it is important how you do judgment no matter where you are. 
It's important. Matthew 18. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So is this individual? And is it corporate? And is it an option? Am I are we responsible? Okay? According to the passage that we just read, am I individually responsible for making some judgments? And has it always been true? Is it a new thing? According to the passage we just read, are we corporately, as a group, responsible for making some judgments? Is this group of Christians responsible for making some judgments? Are there potentially consequences that I'm going to be responsible for? Like in Matthew 18, did we just read that there are some consequences that we are going to be responsible for? Yeah. Let's look at these verses. For I, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 3 through 5. For I verily as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already. This is Paul writing this. As though I were present, he's not even there. Concerning him that hath done, has so done this deed. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So, um, think about this. The world doesn't want accountability from you. They don't want to feel uh, judgment from you. Is this... The world? Or is this us? Is this internal? Is this your family of, your local family of Christians? Um, is this Paul who wasn't even there with a group that he knows? And has Paul done something individually concerning judgment in this case? And has he instructed, has he here instructed them to do something corporately concerning judgment? So is there individual and corporate action and individual and corporate reaction, I guess you'd say. I picked these out. I found this when I was doing this, and I thought it was kind of neat. Uh this you know that you love the children of God when you love God and obey His commandments. You cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. Ooh, that's kind of, that almost sounds mean, doesn't it? Is it? 
That's what you got to ask yourself, right? Would a statement like that be out of character for you? Would that be too uncomfortable for you? You have heard it said, judge not, but I say, do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. So Jesus passed judgment and predicted condemnation. I'm going to pull this passage up. Y'all can turn there if you'd like. Matthew 23, 13 through 36 All right. This is Jesus talking. Y'all notice the red up there. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Wait a minute. Does that sound judgmental to y'all in any way? Hmm. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. What's he predicting here? Is he predicting punishment? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. When he becomes one, you make him twice as much son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, you say... Whosoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whosoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? Is he using logic here on people? You reckon folks like that when you use logic and good sense to tell them, hey, uh, you probably shouldn't be doing that? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. And whoever swears by offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar which which sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and everything on it. And whosoever swears by the temple, swears uh, both by the temple and him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. picked out a whole lot of stuff um i'm gonna skip through some of that because you can see what he's doing is he's reasoning with these people about what they're doing um therefore behold i'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes some of you some of them you will kill and crucify and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city did that does that happen is that going to happen with the apostles coming up That's going to happen. It's fixing to happen. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Is he predicting condemnation for these folks? Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This this is y'all. I'm talking to y'all. I mean you. He's using reasoning and logic to get this point across. That's pretty brutal. Oh, 
Man, I thought that thing was fishing to go to the wrong place on me. Paul confirmed that none are without guilt. Romans 3. I'm running low with time, so we probably won't read all of that either. 5 through, I think it was 25. Um, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Am I speaking in human terms? May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? Is there, is there a need for righteous judgment? Um, but if through my life the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported as some claim that we say, let us uh, do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Wow. Um, I think we see Paul talking about um, making judgments and predicting condemnation. Um, Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, You can go back and read the rest of that. Um, Like I say, I think I'm going to run a light of time. So where does condemnation come? We've just kind of been through this idea of, we've been talking about this idea of judgment. Um, Let's go to Romans 5. 12 through 21. Romans 5. 12 through 21. I'm going to read this. Therefore, just as uh, through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Remember we just read that, all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, uh, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Let me stop right there so we can talk about a particular thought. For until the the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Now, out here, right, somebody's done something, they wind up in court, you're on the jury, and if what we find out is there's not a law against that, are they free to go? What's your judgment going to be? Well, wait a minute. That that law doesn't match up. There's not a law against that. We, there's not a law against that. What they did. So there's their guilt without the law. But the judgment that you provide inside the law is that are you the source of the law? Or are you relying on the law to make the judgment? Right? But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by transgression of of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man of the one man Jesus Christ abound in many. Pay special attention to this next verse. 
The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by, <coughs> for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those... Uh, who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then as though one transgression were resulted, uh, there resulted condemnation to all men, even, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as though one man's disobedience, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but uh, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if, you've got, if you're there, stay there a minute. So do we conclude then that condemnation for me or you comes from Adam's sin? Is my condemnation, or do we go back and think about, well, wait a minute, Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory, yeah, is it, is it my sin that condemns me? And is condemnation what I've earned? Is condemnation what I've earned? I just head nod. Yep, that's what it says. So look at the formula in verse 16. If you still got that open. Um, transgression or sin created or gave occasion for judgment. So remember that. And remember what we're talking about, the passage we're talking about. Which results ultimately in condemnation, hell, eternal separation from God. So... Sin is what causes the judgment, right? Sin is what causes the judgment and results ultimately in condemnation. So judgment is the sentence, guilty or innocent, which best I can tell is kind of the limit of our you know, that's the limit of our scope of involvement in mo- for the most part. Condemnation is the penalty. Now, when we talk about, you know, we read about 1 Corinthians 5 a little earlier, are there some, is there some condemnation, some level of condemnation that comes from us? Yeah. Um, but heaven and hell, does heaven and hell come from us? No more than the law does. Right? So this idea of heaven and hell, it doesn't come from us. Are, are you, you going to be the punisher or the savior? Does the wrath of man uh, generate, is, that, is it righteous? Like God's wrath? Is God's wrath righteous? Or is your, or is your wrath righteous? Right? Same thing with salvation. 
So guilt being a given, guilt is a given, yours and mine, and whoever else we're talking about, it's a given. So, which is automatic? What's the default? The default's condemnation, is it not? Is the default hell? Is it? I see some head nodding. Yeah, that's the default. That's, that's where you are without Jesus. So condemnation or justification, which is more powerful? Look at the contrast in the reading. The contrast, sin and righteousness. The contrast, death and life. Disobedience and obedience. In that reading that you hopefully still got open, you're going to see those contrasts in that. Sin and righteousness, death and life, disobedience and obedience, condemnation and justification. Which is more powerful? So, will judgment, condemnation, and death come as a result of Jesus' wishes? Let me ask this another way. Will judgment, condemnation, and death come as a result of your wishes? What does he want? What does Jesus want? And what should we want as we approach and interact with others? And what exactly is the good news, right? What is the good news? That justification is more powerful than condemnation. Right? That's where the power's at. That's what he come to give. Let's look at our approach. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So if we, if we catch ourselves in, in a situation where we need to make a judgment for somebody else's best interest, how do we do that? Like this? Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, Dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Is this does it does this passage get us out of I mean, are we just can we just are we excused out of this idea of participating in judgments concerning sin out there or in here? Or has this got to do with the way you do it? And with what heart you do those things. Uh, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Is this how I uh, approach rebuke? 
And what if I'm not good at that? What if I'm not good at that? There's some of you in here that have known me long enough to know that maybe I don't excel at all of these things all the time. But I don't really think there's anybody in here that uh, has experienced any of that that thinks I don't love them, right? So if I'm not good at it, am I excused from it? What do people who quote Matthew 7, 1, most of the time, really want? Could it be to escape instruction and righteousness from someone who loves them, recognizes their own faults, and prays for repentance, forgiveness, all while appreciating and embracing God's mercy and grace? When I put it that way, it's almost like, well, how could anybody hate that? Right? But, um, when they've got that on their mind, what are they looking for, really? Right? Any else convenient back to... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. All right, see the question there? I'm going to go back to Matthew 7. Matthew 7. Verse 6. Y'all see verse 6? It was at the bottom of that passage that we read at first. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Why is that there? Why is that, why is that at the bottom of this? He's telling me I have this responsibility and then this, and then this. Let's, let's, read, let's read some verses down here. Not everyone who says to me, this, I'm starting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we did, not, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. All in that same chapter. So does verse 6 seem out of place? And what about 21 through 23? Same chapter. Why does Jesus talk in parables, teach in parables? Why Why does he do that? Think back about why the Bible says Jesus did that. Why does he answer questions with questions? Does Jesus do that and answer questions with questions? And speak in parables? And he actually tells us why he does these things. Is everyone who claims to be an honest person really a big fan of the truth? 
I see Daniel knows the answer. He's shaking his head. No, they're not. You don't have to be very old to know that. Um, so, when I think about the passage itself, the chapter itself, and the context of it, does it seem that um, this idea of casting your pearls before swine and he's talking in the context of a rebuke, you think maybe there might be A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Y'all got that? Think about that with verse 6 and verses 21 through 23 in chapter 7 being in context with this idea of doing a rebuke. Would there be times when you're wasting your time? Is there a shake the dust off your feet moment in some of this? Are you supposed to be the guy down at the college campus standing on some big uh, concrete monument or something up high where you can scream, you're going to hell, you're going to hell because of this, this, and this? Is that productive? Are you maybe wasting your time? Are you maybe casting your pearl before swine? Or have you maybe picked the wrong format for doing this? Or maybe you got the wrong spirit about you to begin with. I don't know. But definitely, maybe we're supposed to use some judgment before sharing judgment. Think that's a conclusion? Think maybe you ought to use a little judgment before you share some? Discernment? And as a part of using some judgment, based on the passage that we originally read, verses 1 through 5, do you need to make sure that you've examined yourself first? before you? Is that step one for this? Based on that passage that we started with. All right. Um, Double check your heart and motives. And remember, this is a command, not an option, right? I appreciate your patience and listen to that. Um, we'll get a chance to, you know, go back and forth with Gary with that here in a little bit. Uh, we'll have a, a break. But before we do, uh, if you've got your songbooks, turn to number I think 284. 284, I'm going to turn this off. <clears throat> 